everyone, and welcome to Life Between the Notes, where we are going beyond the bio and bringing you interviews of your favorite South Central PA musicians. I am Kirsten Myers, a local oboist living in the Lancaster area, and with me today is Morgan Davis, a local flutist also in the Lancaster area. So hello, Morgan. Hi. Do you, do you have your coffee, Morgan? I have coffee and I have water today. So. Oh, you got it all. Yeah, You're covered. Caffeine okay. and hydration. <laughs> so today we are thrilled that saxophonist Ryan Kaufman is willing to share his single read experience with us. And Ryan, you have the dubious honor of being our first male guest on the show. <laughs> And you are also our first saxophonist and first jazz artist. Um, but we have no prizes to bestow upon you for this honor. Very good. <laughs> You're okay with no prizes. No prizes is just fine, but I, I really appreciate the invitation. Absolutely. Yes, and we're so glad that you're here today. Me too. <laughs> and today's episode is brought to you by Keystone Music Repair, which is an independent woodwind and brass repair shop in Pottstown, Pennsylvania, catering to the needs of student, amateur, and professional musicians throughout southeastern Pennsylvania and beyond. All work is done by owner and technician John Kirkner, who has been repairing instruments professionally for over a decade and has specialized knowledge in repairing double reeds. All repairs carry a guarantee that you'll be happy with the work or it will be corrected at no charge. Estimates are free and all work is done by appointment with flexible scheduling to minimize your time without your instrument. Visit keystonemusicrepair.com to see more information, to get in touch and schedule an appointment, and new this year to see a calendar of all the performances from over 40 community bands in southeastern Pennsylvania. Keystone Music Repair is happy to support life between the notes. So, um, full disclosure that Morgan and I both work around, sometimes with Ryan, at Millersville University, um, although we really only see him in the jury room at the end of every semester, so we weren't exactly best friends, but <laughs> hello, Ryan. <laughs> so... And if anybody wants to know what, if you don't know what a jury is, those are kind of like performance finals at the end of a semester um, at universities where we basically adjudicate and, and grade our students. So they can be some long days. <laughs> yeah, we, we've gotten to know each other while watching, watching each other deal with stressed out students. <laughs> yes. I mean, it's, it's just... A, yeah. It's an interesting atmosphere. <laughs> it's the real, yeah, because they walk in and they're like, yes, yeah, yeah, for sure, a pressure cooker uh, yes. <laughs> situation. Yeah. yeah, for sure. So here's a little background on Ryan. Um, he's a saxophonist, woodwind artist, and teacher based in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. He leads several exciting projects, including the Seven One Seven Collective and Triology and is a founding member of the Naked Eye Ensemble. He teaches saxophone at Millersville University and performs throughout the central PA region, including appearances at Bethlehem Music Fest, Tribeca New Music, Central Pennsylvania Friends of Jazz, New Music Gathering, Lancaster Jazz Festival, Shenandoah Valley Bach Festival, Lancaster Summer Arts Festival, Rehoboth Beach Jazz Festival, and Roots and Blues. He has had the privilege of performing with Ron Thomas, Peter Paulson, Harrisburg Symphony, Reading Symphony, Lancaster Symphony Orchestra, and the Liberty Wind Symphony. So Ryan, that's a lot of festivals. It sounds like you're partying all the time. I've had years to put that bio together. <laughs> so, yes, it's it extensive. Is, that's, that's... It, it is not a nonstop party, but um, I have, just with different bands that I've been with or continue to be with, you know, you get opportunities to perform at these at these festivals, yeah. uh, different things, and, and uh, a couple of them I've been at, been at more than once. So the the Shenandoah Valley Bach Festival is an annual uh, week long one that's held in my wife's hometown in Virginia, in okay. Harrisonburg. Um, so that's an orchestral festival. Um, 
every now and then they've programmed a couple of things. A few years ago, it was Bernstein's Centennial. Um, so they, everyone and their brother was doing symphonic dances from West Side. Um, huh? and so being a saxophonist, they have that, that has a solo in the, in the beginning of the movement. I think. So it's, I, was okay. I got to play with them. But we also did Mio um, a few hmm. years ago. We did Creation of the World, which is a terrific piece uh, where the alto sax takes the place of the viola um, in the orchestra. And we did we did this uh, slightly lesser known piece by uh, a Creole composer. Um, the piece is called Night in the Tropics. And the, the composer's name is escaping me right now. I'm sorry. Oh, that's OK. <laughs> um, It'll come to me later, later on. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah, that's, that, that's great. So, um, so did you um, grow up in this area? Are you from the Lancaster area? Yeah, I think that would be the simplest way to explain it. We moved here when I was three or four. Okay. Okay. So right. my, um, my parents didn't grow up here. My family is not originally from this area, but um, okay. you know, when I was three or four, my dad got a job here and we moved here. Okay. All right, and so, and like, what what high school did you attend? I went to Lancaster Mennonite High. That's where my okay. dad my dad taught there for about forty years, oh. and uh, he was the Spanish teacher. And um, after middle school, um, they uh, my, my I think it would be fair to say they leaned on me a little bit um, mm -hmm. to to go to Mennonite instead of go to Hemfield. Mm -hmm. um, at at the time, you know, you're a teenager, but uh, so I, I pushed back a little, but I was like, okay, fine. You know, <laughs> it turned out to be a really good fit for me. And I had some, I had some really great friends from there and, uh, and a good experience overall in high school. Great. So were your, were either of your parents like musicians in any way? Did they play any instruments or sing? Or... No, my dad, well, my dad, he, he tells the story that when he was much younger, um, well, let me let me back up just a little bit and simplify. Both of my parents come from families of like eight siblings, um, farming families. Um, my mom is from way up northern New York, almost in Canada. It's an area called uh, Krogan and Watertown and Lowville, that sort of area. And my dad is from uh, Wayne County, Ohio. Um, so both of them grew up in farming families, and there just really wasn't a whole lot of opportunity to to learn musical instruments. Um, my dad sings really well. He was taught to sing shape notes by his elder sister. Okay. Um, if you don't know what shape notes are, I'm sure the two of you do. If our, if our oh. viewers don't know what shape notes are, it's a, it's a way of teaching four-part hymn singing that goes back to these singing schools that were held um, in rural parts of America. Um, and basically every note of the scale, do, re, mi, fa, sol, la, ti, has a different shape to the note. So it might be a triangle or a square or something like that. Uh, otherwise it looks like normal notation. But it's a way to, to get people who might not be, it, it was a way for folks who weren't initially musically literate to learn how to read music at sight because they could, they could find the pitches um, using the solfege that way. Yeah, that's so interesting. That's how my, that's how my dad learned to sing. Um, okay. Something he still really enjoys doing. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, so when when did you start? Did you start saxophone like in the? Was that your first instrument? And did you start like in fourth grade when it's typically started? Yeah, yeah, the sort of normal thing. Mm -hmm. I forget if it was between saxophone or trumpet. For some reason, trumpet is in my head too. But I, I never took trumpet. I never, I never played one or anything like that. Yeah. Saxophone was the first thing. Um, typically, around here in Lancaster, it's about fourth grade. They have the, the, right. the local band will come to your, or the high school band might come to your elementary school and demo a few instruments, and mm -hmm. kids get to sort of pick and choose what they think is cool. Yeah. And did you did you like it right away? And like, did you always love it? Um, yeah, I liked it. I thought it had a cool sound and I thought it looked cool. Um, uh, still, I still think that, but um, <laughs> uh, I wasn't, I mean, I, I, I definitely was not um, a super dedicated student. I enjoyed it. I liked the sound that it made. Um, I think I remember 
my my private teachers at the time, who were basically whoever the band director was at, at Mountville Elementary School, um, you know, would send home notes every so often, sort of a, a parent-teacher note. You know, like, Ryan gets a very nice sound on the saxophone. He should practice more. Um, <laughs> sort of re a recurring refrain, I'm pretty sure, uh, most of the time. Yeah. Well, and, you know, honestly, like, so far with, like, the interviews that we've been doing, that's a, almost like a common theme, you know, that like practicing was just not, you know, I think people assume that, you know, as like adult musicians or professional musicians, that like from the get go, like you were practicing like, you know, all the time and immediately and, um, but it's just not necessarily a natural thing. <laughs> not necessarily. And yeah, and, and yeah. I don't know. I mean, it's the type of thing that if you want to go there, you can look back at it and be like, man, if I would have been more, if I would have been just been a little more dedicated, you know, how much further could I be? But it's, that's, it's really not a healthy space to go into. Yes. <laughs> so, right. You know, I, right. I try to pull myself away from that, that type of thinking. I was being a kid, you know, I was riding my bike and, and, you know, right. playing with my cat or, or my right. brother or the neighborhood kids. And I wanted to play baseball and stuff like that. <laughs> right. There's value in all of that stuff too. And, you know, it's like, you can sit and think, and I do sometimes like, oh, if I would have pushed myself in these places, I would be somewhere else. But I think it would take a lot, you know, for the trajectory to be a little bit different. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 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 And um, I think for me, you know, this was this was kind of apart from saxophone itself, but I think uh, you know, growing up, um, I grew up in a, a pretty um, pretty sheltered, pretty conservative Mennonite environment. Our home church was um, was a very simple, wonderful, friendly you know um, environment to be in. I do remember sometime when I was I, I must have still been in elementary school at the time. Uh, I remember our church kind of moving from always singing out of the hymn books, you know, and like using these these hymn, hymns with the shape notes in them and everything uh, to actually having like a guitar player up front or maybe the guitar player and his wife, you know, leading these, these sort of uh, praise songs or worship songs. And um, I remember really gravitating to that as a really young person, not so much from the standpoint I mean, I liked, I liked the music itself too. Um, but also I, I think I knew even at that time that I wanted to, that was something I wanted to be a part of. Like I wanted to be where the music was coming from mm. somehow. Uh -huh. you, pri you studied privately eventually um, in high school or before? Uh, before. Yeah. I think I'm, I think it would have been somewhere around fifth or sixth grade. Uh, my band director recommended that I that I get with a private teacher, and so um, I think it was sixth grade. I, I got connected. You know, my parents called one down one of those lists or something mm -hmm. like that um, with a, a wonderful local saxophonist and gentleman um, who he's now retired, but he taught for many years at Centerville Elementary. His name's Phil Smith, okay. and uh, Phil Smith was my saxophone teacher for for many years, and. Um, uh, yeah, so I, I owe him a real debt of gratitude just for keeping me moving forward and, and keeping me engaged with the instrument, even when I wanted to like play guitar instead of saxophone and, and kind of like fool around with that. Right. Yeah, again, not really taking it seriously, but um, he yeah. made the lessons fun and he would demonstrate stuff for me. He could play piano. Mm -hmm. So, um, you yeah. know, that was that was always cool to kind of connect that and like, oh, like we're playing we're playing take take five by Paul Desmond and like he can play the piano part like that's pretty neat. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's yeah, it brings a different aspect to it that they don't always or students don't get always get an experience with um, like yeah. certainly like in, in school. Um, go ahead. Uh, is, is that so is that like when you started to get into jazz was taking lessons? Yeah, a little bit. And, and again, well, I mean, I'm not saying anything new here, but I mean, I knew very little. I mean, I had been exposed to very little sort of 
breadth of music at that point. But I mean, I knew my band music from school and I knew music that was on the radio. I knew music from church. Um, but yeah, Mr. Smith introduced me to like, he, I remember he made a tape. Um, you may have to educate your viewers on what a tape is. But. Right. <laughs> Cassette <laughs> tape. Yes. Correct. Yes. Not scotch. <laughs> yeah. Right. Uh, he made me a cassette tape of like some some jazz artists because uh, I showed some interest in it. Like um, so, and I think there was some Brubeck. There was some Dave Brubeck group on there with Paul Desmond. There was some Yellow Jackets. Um, I I can't remember who any of the other artists were at the time mm-hmm. that were on the tape, but I kind of liked it. I listened to it a few times. Um, I think what really what really got me kind of hooked in a little bit was then when he started showing me how like you could use you could just these use these few notes and you could improvise you could you could uh Mm -hmm. make your own melody to what was going on so that again to me that was like what i get i get to Mm -hmm. i get to just play the blues and like do this thing and even with my extremely limited <laughs> uh, knowledge at that point. I mean, I knew that that was something uh, that I was just really in love with right away. Right. Yeah. And creating your own music really is, or yeah. <laughs> a version of it. Sounds. I mean, I had, the blues is such an American sound. We've all heard it, mm-hmm. you know, because it's, it's in all of American music. And so as soon as he showed me, some of the very basics about how how to how to make these sounds mm-hmm. that are the sound of the blues. I mean, right away, and he basically had to stop me. <laughs> he was like, okay, okay, you know. But it was it was really intriguing, and and I loved it right away. Yeah. So when did you decide that you wanted to make it your career and go into music? Maybe so I'm, I would have been like twenty one or twenty two. Okay. Um, I was majoring in music at the time at, mm-hmm. at my college, but I was, uh, believe it or not, I was a guitar major for about a year and a half, which was absolutely oh. ridiculous, but, <laughs> but I was, um, <clears throat> uh, pardon me. Um, and then I, I took a little time off from, from university, uh, about a year and a half. And then when I came back, I had sort of I'd like to think I had sort of sorted some things out a little more and like, look, if you're gonna, speaking to myself, you know, if you're gonna actually be a music major, you might want to pick an instrument that you have a lot more history on. And you might want to pick something that, you know, I mean, you're gonna have to give recitals, you're gonna have to, you know, and so at that point, guitar for me was like, you know, I wanted to play Bob Dylan songs, I wanted to play Simon and Garfunkel. I mean, this wasn't the type of thing that you would do on an academic recital. Right. Um, but right. the saxophone I had been getting back into, you know, I was in the jazz ensemble at school, so I really enjoyed that. Mm-hmm. Um, and once I got hooked up with uh, with a teacher um, there, then that really started to, I mean, like like probably both of you was, was your experience as well. Um, if you, I, I found that if I started, if I could convince myself to get in the practice room, and start developing some expertise on something. Mm-hmm. Lo and behold, uh, it was a lot of fun to sound better. And, um, yep, that's the truth. <laughs> it's such a simple thing, but uh, yeah. I think it tapped into a part of me uh, that that I really, um, yeah, that I was getting back into into in touch with. Um, mm-hmm. And so I just enjoyed that. Like, oh, this sounds this sounds way better. And then you get the positive reinforcement from from your colleagues or from uh, some of your professors as well and that right. of course really helps too i mean they notice we notice when people really practice yeah <laughs> yeah and when yeah. we don't <laughs> and when we don't yeah 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 <laughs> oh yes goes both ways <laughs> so where did you go to college i went to eastern mennonite university okay okay great and same town, uh, sorry to jump in, uh, same town as James Madison in Virginia. So ah. them lack, uh, Eastern Mennonite is a very small liberal arts college. Um, we didn't have a saxophone instructor. Um, so I went across town to James Madison for, um, for my saxophone lessons. 
and mm -hmm. also for uh, because I was a performance major, um, I needed to get chamber music credit, and there was there wasn't really a way to to do any kind of chamber music credit um, at my school. So they sent me over there to um, to audition for the jazz combo class because we felt like that would be maybe something that that would work. Um, so uh, about twice a week, I would I would drive over to James Madison and absolutely get smeared. Um, by, the, by the saxophone majors over there, which again was really, really good for me at the time, having been in this sort of a little bubble um, mm -hmm. surrounding me. So realizing like, gosh, she can really play. Yeah. <laughs> it was really good for me. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sure that's a huge motivation. So, and to be surrounded by people, of course, who are um, at a higher level than you, for sure. Yeah. And it was fun. I mean, like we were learning tunes. We were, you know, we had to blow on these tunes. You know, they had a combo class lined up where I think they had five or six student combos. Um, you had to audition and then they would kind of place everybody roughly according to, to, um, to experience level. Um, mm -hmm. But then part of your exam was that you had to play at the local club. There was this local uh, club called Gus's where, mm -hmm. um, where the saxophone professor uh, Gunnar Mossblad had kind of a standing um, weekly engagement over there yeah. and um, he would get really good rhythm sections come in and you know so we would I, at that point I would eventually start going out to hear live jazz um, to hear them play and it was really intimidating um, mm -hmm. but also really inspiring mm -hmm. but then the student combos once a semester you had to you had to go to Gus's and and do your set uh, and the teachers would come and they'd get a table and, you know, check out what you guys were doing. So that was, that was great. It was really Wow. So we, we need to have our juries at Gus's. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure some things would go more smoothly and other things. Would, yes. Oh, yes. I, I can I, see I, them going downhill very fast. Sad to I say Gus's is no more. So, uh oh. But, no. Uh, at the time, it was the place to be. I'm sure we can find another place. <laughs> <laughs> I uh, I think it's interesting. Like, it matters so much when you're a student. It, like, the to find that motivation of like hearing other people play well who are your age and also, you know, your instructors and, um, you know, I I think seeing that as like motivation rather than intimidation, um, and just being like, man, that's like really cool. And how do I do that? And how are they doing that? And um, being Putting yourself in environments where you can be inspired that way just makes a big difference. Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. And it's both. I mean, you're, I think, speaking for myself, I was simultaneously inspired and intimidated. Yes, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, uh, I think, too, um, I don't think I'm necessarily, I don't think this is necessarily really unique either, but just that it, it's not that I had a chip on my shoulder, but it was also, I just had this. I also felt like I had this thing where like, well, here's, I'm this Mennonite kid, you know, showing up and trying to hang, trying to play with these kids who have obviously been practicing a lot more than I have. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, yeah, I just felt like there was a lot of catching up <laughs> that uh, had to be done. I still feel that way, really, honestly. Mm -hmm. But, uh, <laughs> you know, I keep, I, we, we keep at it. But so it was intimidating um, in that regard too, because they just seemed so much more, uh, you know, worldly wise at that point in their lives than, than I was, I felt like kind of lost and like, geez, how do you even like, okay, where's the club? Like, where do I have to, where do I, where do I you know, all these things, right? Cause it all was so new to me. Um, and then you hope you just don't embarrass yourself playing the music. <laughs> but the music, the hook, I mean, by that time I was, by that time I was listening, I was really listening to a lot of Joe Henderson, a lot of Charlie Parker, a lot of Cannonball Adderley. Um, there was a, there's an alto saxophonist who um, one of one of Gunner's grad students introduced me to Kenny Garrett, um, not literally introduced me, introduced me to, to Kenny Garrett's music. Um, yeah. I remember <clears throat> and I remember one album in particular that came out in the late 90s called Songbook, uh, Kenny Garrett's album songbook that I just had on all the time. Mm -hmm. Joshua Redman. Joshua Redman was another saxophonist that I just had his music on constantly. 
Yeah. Um, to the point where like my my housemates could sing the melodies. <laughs> we, all, we all knew the music as well. So you had just immersed yourself in in being a saxophonist, really. Uh, yeah, and in specifically in that type of music, although I had to do recitals as well. So I, I also at the time started learning that like, oh, there's all this like there are all these sonatas and concertos and, yeah. and suites, you know, for alto saxophone and this is yeah. this is crazy. <laughs> yeah, it opens up a whole different world to you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, but I, and I really enjoyed that music too, even mm-hmm. though it um, it wasn't necessarily where my listening would gravitate toward. My listening was always going back to to listening to 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 jazz. Yeah. Um, but uh, once you, I felt that once I found that once I took the time to learn these pieces, to learn the the Lundy Sonata, or to learn the the Maurice uh, Tableau de Provence, they were really rewarding pieces to learn and play. So yeah, I still enjoy them. Yeah. So had you ever considered another career or had it always been music? Um, I'm not sure. I mean, so from, from your, what you're saying, it seems to me like you were, you're just on that path, whether it was guitar or saxophone, like you were oh. going to stay in that, in that realm. Yeah, but it, I don't think it was really that definite, especially not as a young person, as a very yeah. young person. Mm-hmm. Um, I was really into art. I had, I was, I was blessed to have really great art teachers um, mm. when I was in elementary school and middle school and high school. Mm-hmm. And um, all three of them, Mr. Richter, uh, I can't remember my middle school teacher's name, <laughs> uh, but, and, um, Mrs. Hauser as well at, at the high school level. Mm-hmm. They were both really, um, more than I knew it, they were real mentors at the time too. Mm-hmm. Um, Mr. Richter in particular, he created this whole like after school program for kids who just really liked the art room and wanted to do more than just the, uh, the regular assignments that we were doing during art class. So it was kind of like a, it was like an extracurricular art class, you know, we mm-hmm. stay after school about one day a week and do these projects. And well, I just really love that too. Just mm-hmm. Yeah. That, you know, everything Draw, drawing in particular and charcoal pastels, um, you know, the way pastels are kind of greasy, right? So like the mm-hmm. way that you can kind of smear them and the way they feel in your hands, um, was just, yeah, it was a, it was a whole other thing. So I was kind of thinking about art, Mm-hmm. when I went to college too. Um, and I didn't end up going that way. I just, um, right. I went the you, practical way and I, I majored in music performance. So do you still involve yourself with art now? You know, unfortunately not, not so much, not at least not in creating visual art at, at this time. Um, I still okay. enjoy it. I, I might sit down and draw something, but that's, it's really rare at the moment. Yeah. Well, yeah. And just being busy, of course, you know, with life, we don't always have time to do all of those things that we enjoy and the hobbies that we like to do. Yeah. Yeah. But that's a good, it's a good reminder that that's there. And yeah. Perhaps that can come back at some point. It's interesting. Cause like, I think, I mean, I have an interest in, I used to paint when I was younger and, um, in the last like five or six years, I got really into calligraphy and hand lettering and doing some watercolor painting. And then the last two or three years, I've not done really any of it because I just have been busy. And and sometimes it's hard, I think, when you're doing something creative for a living to like give some of that time to another creative thing um, because it feels like, you know, if you've got the time to spend, it should be with the, the primary, um, or at least for me, that's the struggle of like having two things that are sort of similar in, in some way that you'd like to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I, I totally understand where you're coming from. So when, when you um, graduated from college, then like, what was your first job as well, at least as a, as a uh, musician? <laughs> oh, as a musician? Yeah. Or, well, what was, what was your other job if you had another one? Um, 
toward the tail end of college, uh, right toward the tail end of college, I had a housemate who had started apprenticing at a local pottery uh, production studio that is, uh, it's a great little place. It's still in operation. It's called Blue Ridge Pottery. It's mm -hmm. just off of Skyline Drive um, in, uh, I'd say, I guess it's a green, it's Green County, I think, Green County, Virginia. A uh, little rural uh, pottery place, but um, he just think I needed a summer job and my friend Steve was like, well, you should, I'm apprenticing at this place. You should just come, like apply and like we could use a lot of help during summer because we get all these tourists coming down from the resort, you know, and uh -huh. uh, so I did that for uh, several summers in a row where I would just, um, and then I took, a, after I, even after I graduated, I think I took a whole year and worked for the better part of a year there. Um, that was the closest thing to, to uh, art that I've, I guess that I've done more recently. And that was, that was more production pottery. I wasn't really doing, um, it was like, you know, here's how you make this, here's how you make this mug, now make a hundred of them. <laughs> Which was, was great. It's really, it was, it was a, a different level of discipline than, than I was aware of or, or knew about. And, um, you know, that was, you know, it was, it was pottery for sale. So that was the, uh, uh -huh. the, the bent there, but it was great and great people to work with. Um, yeah, the, yeah, I don't know. I could just go yeah, on. No, no, that's so it cool. Was, yeah. It was really cool. It, now that I think about it, I mean, yeah, there were so many cool things about that job, you know, yeah. being, being in front of this kiln where like, it's like thousands of degrees in the room. It's just blowing flaming <laughs> gas into this this mound of, of uh, fire brick, you know, and then and then and then it has to cool down. And then when you roll out the cart, when the firing is finished, you know, we never knew. I mean, we knew pretty much if the firing had gone well, right? But it was like opening a Christmas present every few weeks, you know, because <laughs> you just roll out this cart and it's like. <laughs> Did the reds come out or did they wash out and turn green? You know, did, did yeah, the that, reds, you know, it was really cool. I can totally relate to that because that's kind of like how oboe reeds are, you know, <laughs> you just, you yeah. just work on it and you hope, it's like, hope it's going to work out at the end and some of them will work. And, but yeah. 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 So that was, that was my first kind of job job like during the tail end of school there. Then, um, my uh my girlfriend at the time now my wife christy she um she went to grad school uh in north carolina uh, mm -hmm. for viola and i was looking for a grad school and i ended up landing at westchester university uh to do my master's there so my first musical job then would have been um, i mean i had a ta thing as a master's student but also i showed up I showed up for my first day at school for my advisement meeting and um, Dr. Grab looked across the table at me and said, do you teach uh, saxophone? And I said, um, yeah. Sure. <laughs> sure. <laughs> and, uh, so he slid a business card across the desk to me and said, you should, you should call these people. Um, and it, it turned out to be uh, Darlington Arts Center, which is a local well, I say local, it's Delaware County, but it wasn't that far from Westchester at the time, about a 20 minute drive. Okay. Um, it was like a, a community arts center. They taught everything from painting to pottery, to dance, to musical instruments and, and stuff. Um, so he, he happened to know that their saxophone, uh, saxophone teacher was leaving mm -hmm. and um, that they were looking. And so I called them up and the, they gasped on the phone and said, can you, can you come for an interview? And um, I was extremely green, but I, I went for an interview and they very graciously uh, <laughs> to, to hire me. And um, I was there about 14 years. Wow. Okay. Wow. So you had lived in that area then for, for that long? And in, in I was West in Westchester two years and then oh, okay. just doing the masters. And then my wife, my wife and I got married and um, we moved here, moved back here to Lancaster city. Uh, mm -hmm. And I continued to commute because I just didn't have, I didn't have anything here yet. No one knew who I was. I didn't have any students here. Um, you know, okay. I, so a couple days a week I was driving down there to, uh, to teach right. Yeah. Which is kind of what we do. I mean, you have to drive where the, where the work is. Um, so, 
Yep. So when did when did you and Christy get married? Two thousand one, June thirtieth. Okay, and she, and she'll be happy to know that you remembered. And <laughs> so, uh, right. <laughs> and so she's a musician, correct? Yes, and she's a violist. Yeah. Right. Okay. Fantastic viola player. Yeah, that's that's awesome. So, what what's it like? being married to another musician like they... <laughs> of course you don't know otherwise i guess so that was the point of reference I, right it's it but, seems normal to me yeah do, do you perform together ever uh yeah i would say rarely but occasionally yeah. you know um in the orchestras you know so Bolero, symphonic dancers from West Side Story, Neo, uh -huh. things like that that I was mentioning at, at the top of the hour. Um, we've we've right. played together. Right. That. Um, we do have a chamber music project that um, has been on hiatus for a little bit, but there, there are there are hints of that um, possibly coming back with um, two other colleagues of ours. Uh -huh. uh, so the ensemble is um, clarinet, saxophone, viola, and piano. Okay. And um, for for quite a while, we were putting on these benefit concerts for Mennonite Central Committee's work around the world, uh, and so those are that's going to come back. We're, we're hoping it, uh, next year, twenty twenty three. So I, I say that to say that there's there's since there wasn't any literature like for our combination, um, mm -hmm. we've, we've we've either arranged it ourselves or gotten people to write stuff for us. Right. Yeah, that's great. Mm -hmm. um, and so, and you have a son, correct? Yeah. Yes. And and when was he born? 2008. 2008. Okay. So, and let's see. So how, I'm terrible with I that. know. I was just sitting here. How old is he now? How old is he now? He just turned 14. Okay. <laughs> Thank you. I need my calculator. Um, so did that change anything for you when your son was born? Um, like, as far as your career path it's uh, pretty much everything that people tell you it's going to be mm -hmm. you know and so there was definitely a, a complete reprioritization of, right. and, and there continues to be mm -hmm. continues to be necessary um mm -hmm. i feel like to, to keep myself on track as a parent mm -hmm. uh just like what's really important here just, yeah uh, who is really <laughs> who are my allegiances <laughs> um but yeah it's it it really was a big change i think one of the one of the one of the big advantages um if i could put it that way of, of being two basically self-employed musicians was that we have been able to kind of structure our time around uh -huh. how to you know, child care how to yeah how to how to raise a child i've also I, let me say i've also been really we've been really fortunate to have you know i my parents live nearby so that's also been something we've leaned on from time to time quite a bit um but when he was when ezra was even when ezra was tiny you know i again i had the luxury of being able to just stay home with him all morning and play with legos or something mm -hmm. until yeah. christy would come home uh, and then, you know, we would do the tag team. Yeah, tag team yep. turn, and, and I would go off to teach lessons for the evening or whatever. But um, I don't I don't know. I don't know how other exactly how other families do it. But I, I've gotten to spend a lot of time with him, um, especially at, an, at ages, you know, when he was really little and then elementary school. And now he's going into high school next year. Yeah. Um, just gotten to spend a lot more time with him during the days like that, that I've really appreciated. Yeah, that's great. The ensembles that you are currently playing in, um, one recently has been uh, Naked Eye Ensemble, um, which is, uh, I believe, a nonprofit organization that um, they, do they um, commission works from like living composers and they, and they play works of living composers? That's the main thrust, I think. Yeah. Of, of the group. Working, working with uh, living composers um, yeah. and uh, commissioning new work and then premiering right. that work. 
mm-hmm. sort of building, basically building a body of repertoire around the ensemble itself. Um, yeah. Working with when, when did that group um, start? When did that form? Do you remember? Uh, <laughs> has it been 10 years? I don't know that it's been. Yeah. yeah. It probably okay. has. Um, I, I remember at the time I was teaching at the now defunct um, Pennsylvania Academy of Music, which was uh, downtown in Lancaster here. Mm-hmm. Um, and our uh, Naked Ensemble's artistic director and founder, uh, Zhu Ping Song, was also teaching piano at the time there. Okay. Um, so that's how we met. I think she, she oh, put okay. together like a faculty, uh, she sort of spearheaded like a faculty concert at the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I think I, I played a movement from a sonata or something like that. And then she and I ended up playing together on uh, a few other things. Just the, the group wasn't even called Naked Eye Ensemble yet. It was just, uh-huh. we knew we wanted, she knew that she wanted to program a lot of new new work. Uh-huh. Uh, so I think we did David Lang's Lying, Lying Cheating, Stealing. I think that's the title of the, of the piece. Um, yeah. And we played some other, I, I know, I played a soprano saxophone and piano duo with her at the time as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, we had several, several people. So, but I can't remember the year. Sorry. <laughs> no, that's fine. Yeah. I was just curious. So, um, and, and so, and recently um, you've been working on, or you did do a recording um, recently with them. Yeah, it's done. This is the third one. Um, okay. It's uh, actually it might be the fourth. Mm. There's, well, eh, I should, before I get into that, this will be the third one, <laughs> uh, I think, as, as far as in, in the, the, the release um, of each CD. I don't, I don't think we have a title yet. Zuping um, okay. might. I'm not sure if we have a working <laughs> title for it yet, but it's, okay. it's finished. I've heard the masters and everything. It sounds great. I can't, I can't play any, any of it for you. I'm not right. Playing. <laughs> yes. <laughs> no, that's okay. Yeah, I think it's currently being shopped around um, mm-hmm. through different labels to see who would want to release it. But um, mm-hmm. yeah, it sounds fantastic. The, so those are some works by, let's see, there's a composer up in Boston. His name is Aaron J. Myers. Um, there's a work, one of his pieces is there. Uh, Rusty Banks, who both of you know, he um, wrote a new piece for us to play. I know I'm going to leave somebody out, so I, I probably shouldn't go too far. <laughs> Naming composers, um, bassist, local bassist, um, Mike Bitts, um, uh, he orchestrated and arranged a Frank Zappa, uh, piece for us to play, which was really a blast. Oh, great. Do something different. Mm -hmm. Um, Rick Belcastro, Ricky Belcastro wrote a piece for us. So there's, there's several, several things on the, um, disc that they're sounding really terrific. And, and you guys are going to be doing a, a residency at Temple, is, is that right? Yes, but that's all I know at this point. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah. No details. It's yeah. September, okay. and, and that's, that's all I know at this point. But right. That's exciting, too. Yeah. So what, what um, do you enjoy most about being in that ensemble? Um. Aside from the, I mean, there's, there's a general, the general camaraderie. I just like hanging out with musicians basically, (laughs) but, um, the general camaraderie is great, but also, uh, yeah, I think it, what's been neat about it for me, um, is that it's, I, I, I guess it would roughly fit under the umbrella of, of classical, music in in the sense that it's written our parts are mostly written out mm-hmm. so you know I, I have to play these notes in this order but um it's it's much more i don't want to be too descriptive because i don't want to like pigeonhole it or something like that right being the fact that it's new there's there's like a rawness to the um to the pieces you know they're they're literally you know, the, the ink is literally not quite dry mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, when we're working on them. And then we're sort of workshopping them often with the composers. Right. Um, so that's really cool to kind of sort of get a glimpse inside the composer's mind um, uh-huh. and get a glimpse into the, the birth of these pieces and kind of like, because some of them really change yeah. over the course of the, the few weeks that we're actually workshopping the pieces with the composers. Yeah, that's exciting. 
Yeah. That's yeah, neat. Really to, neat. To be part of that process. So mm -hmm. very cool. Do you um, end up um, involved in like any of the like nonprofit aspects of that? Because I'm sure like if it's a commission, there's like there's a money exchange. Um, so is, has that experience like been part of that or is it really do you are you just focused on on the musical aspect? Uh, the second, I'm, I'm, my participation is mostly about that, although I mean, I'm happy to, you know, we all help each other out in terms of loading in gear and things like that. But um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I just try to make sure that my part is ready. <laughs> so, um, so as far as like your preference as to like what performance style you enjoy the most, would you say it's jazz as opposed to like gigging for shows, um, that kind of thing. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's definitely, it's definitely jazz and playing improvised um, music, yeah. uh, which is not to, which is not to say I, that, yeah, that's, that's just my favorite. <laughs> but, yeah. Yeah. Uh, all of these other things really, all of these other things that we're describing really inform, um, just like they would with anybody, they just really inform your your musical personality, mm -hmm. and I think it's good to to you know you don't necessarily have to. Um, well, you can't you can't be a master of everything, mm -hmm. uh, but being a self employed musician, um, you do have to know <laughs> how to be at least competent at many things. Sure, and then you may have those you know, one or two things where you, you know, where, where uh, you really sort of come into your own or that just fits you personally like a glove. Uh, but then there's a whole bunch of other things that, you know, if you want to work, you kind of have to be able to do. Yeah, absolutely. Right. At least at a, at a competent level. Mm -hmm. Right. And, then I... the other things, and the things that are not, you probably should maybe say no to. Yeah. <laughs> Well, that's hard too, though, because you know you're always like, "Oh, a job, yes, I'll take a job." <laughs> no, oh, maybe I'm not so good at this one. Um, but no, I think probably you're like the the expectations for you might be a little different. We both play, you know, very orchestral instruments, um, but I think saxophone is one of those instruments that sort of floats in between, like you know, more commercial, and then you have jazz, and there's some class like you've been talking about. There are times that you play in orchestras um or new music or so you i think you're in an interesting position with your instrument you're probably right in the center of a lot of those areas mm -hmm. yeah i i would say that not to be i'm not trying to be negative i would just say sometimes it it feels like you're the perpetual odd man out because uh. of, because of your instrument like you show you know there's there's like a running joke, you know, where like the saxophonist shows up to the orchestra gig and all the other musicians just scatter, right? <laughs> <laughs> um, but, you know, yeah. what are you going to do? Yeah. I mean, they're not going to play Bolero at every, you know, concert, right? Well, that, yeah, that too. I mean, the times you get to play that kind of thing are, mm -hmm. are pretty few and far between. And I've really enjoyed them. I mean, it's, mm -hmm. playing Bolero was super fun. Mm -hmm. um, and playing playing Mio, playing the creation of the world was super fun. That was, mm -hmm. it was wild to be sitting right, because I was sitting right under the conductor. I mean, it was, yeah, it was really- Just like a flute player in, in band. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was a really, it was quite the experience, you know, so. Yeah. So, um, so I imagine that you have um, gigged for, for shows like musicals and that kind of thing as well. Um, so do you play other instruments? Like, do you, do you play the flutes? Uh, like, do you, or have you ever had to like double like in, in those shows or triple? <laughs> yeah, I have. Yeah. Um, I'm, okay. I'm a little, I'm a little self-conscious saying that I play the flute in front of Morgan, but I do. <laughs> I hold the flute. Uh, <laughs> no, I, I also, I, I, I hold the flute. flute. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I don't touch the flute. That's okay, I don't touch the other either, so. Um, yeah, I mean, uh, I've, come to, I've come to really love the flute, actually. I, I practice it um, quite a bit. 
that's uh, probably if I had to pick my favorite double or something like that, that would that would be one of them. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I play I play piccolo, flute, clarinet. Um, I have all four saxophones. Mm -hmm. I can play bass clarinet. I don't have one uh, currently, but you know I have done all of those for uh, for theater playing, mostly in a substituting context. Mm -hmm. um, and every now and then I will do a full run depending mm -hmm. on the theater. Okay. And yeah, and speaking of gigs, you said that in the in the fall you have an upcoming um, Coltrane inspired mass that you'll be playing for. This is like John Coltrane we're talking about. Um, and so, how did how did that come about? And the idea for that do you do you know? Were you involved in that, or you you were just asked to play? Um, I was asked to play. We've uh, but we've done that. Um... We've already done that twice at St. Oh, okay. James. Uh, this was at St. James Episcopal. Um, they, um, for, for quite a few years, they had this tradition of doing these sort of themed uh, Saturday evening masses that are slightly less formal. Mm -hmm. uh, and sometimes they would feature um, music by, you know, sort of like a, there'd be a theme to the mass, like it'd be a mass, but it'd be the music of Bob Dylan along right. with the mass or, uh, or something something similar to that. Right. Um, so yeah, I don't, I don't remember the year specifically, but they, um, they invited mm -hmm. me to, to do that several years ago. And we've, we've done two of them so far. Both times we did, um, we did the entire uh, Love Supreme suite um, oh. from Coltrane's album, Love Supreme. Oh. Um, so it's pretty intense, but uh, it was really, it was, speaking for myself, it was, really intimidating to take that on but it was also really meaningful personally for me mm -hmm. um and i think i think it was really well received in general and and why was that meaningful for you um i mean yeah i mean i don't want to sound like a cliche because you know, when you talk about talk about coltrane people tend to bring up a love supreme because it's one of his best known works one of his best known albums um i think personally for me it's it's meaningful because at that time in coltrane's life he was you know he was moving from uh, he had been clean already for a few years but he was he was moving out of a period of dealing with addiction uh -huh. and having gotten cleaned up um and he was moving into uh, his music in general was moving away from playing sort of standard song forms and playing um, sort of uh, Tin Pan Alley tunes and, and things like that, like you would maybe expect in the, the sort of general American songbook or American, American songbook repertoire that jazz artists use so much. Uh, he was moving away from that and his music was taking on more and more of an overtly spiritual bent. I mean, it just, it really was. Um, and um, in, in fact, in that particular album, there's a poem on the inside liner notes that he, um, that reads kind of like a prayer or like an incantation that, that Coltrane wrote. Uh, um, and if you listen to so if you if you read those uh, words and you follow along with movement four of the Love Supreme, which is called Psalm, mm -hmm. uh, you can see that he's he's intoning this text on the saxophone. So it's like word mm -hmm. for word, note for note. Um, we know that he did that on more than one album, more than one tune, but since we don't have the text for any of those other ones. Mm -hmm. um, anyway, I mean just. Coming from coming from my background and coming from up where you know growing up in in the Mennonite Church um, was was really meaningful for me and continues to be really meaningful for me. Finding a, a, a you know a jazz artist of his stature who would so overtly just put his his spiritual thought mm -hmm. out there. Right. Um, that was it was kind of shocking to me at the time. I mean, uh, when I first when I first heard that album, um, 
and kind of checked out the story behind it. There's some of the right. stories behind that and read, you know, read about Coltrane, about his life and all, all those sorts of things. Um, so it was just an album that had an impact on you. Yeah. Yeah. And like a lot of his music has, I mean, you can hear that there, there's a sort of, uh, there's a sort of seeking cry in, in his sound in particular that, um, mm -hmm. I, I just hear it. You can I, I can identify with it somehow. Right. right. Okay. And go ahead, Morgan. <laughs> the those those services at St. James, though those like themed um, masses, I think that's such a cool concept. Um, and like what you're talking about, and what you know that that album and that experience of playing it being meaningful for you. Um, I think it's interesting to tie those things together for people um, who maybe aren't musicians, but it's like giving a little bit of context into the way people take their art and then um, explore their spiritual experiences or like whatever's going on um, with their self inquiry. Um, I just think that that's a neat, a neat thing to, to offer to people. Um, it's a cool overlay of those two things. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, um, yeah, there's a few things in that music that are just kind of juxtaposed. Um, it's not the only it's not the only album of its type. I mean, you know, uh, Sonny Rollins recorded the Freedom Suite. Uh, mm -hmm. Max Roach recorded the Freedom Now Suite. You know, there are there are other sources from that time, and it's it's kind of a product of the times. You're talking about mid '60s, so this is this is heavy into the social rights or, or excuse me, civil rights movement, and um, yeah, you just have to kind of take a glance at the news and the sort of current events of that time period to sort of put that music in its context. It, it's really, it's really something to investigate. Yeah. And then to connect it with the church is also. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That, that's a cool thing that I feel like there's other places I've lived that like that sort of thing wouldn't happen. That that's like a sort of a, feels like a Lancaster thing to me to to fit all those pieces together. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and making it accessible um, to the public um, a little more easily as well. And just exposure to that, that type of music um, that not many people, you know, get, have an opportunity to listen to as well. Um, you had uh, mentioned to us early about, earlier um, about the, the art of jazz being or part of it being um, passed on verbally, um, like you were speaking of like an oral tradition of, of jazz rather than in a, like a more formal setting. Can you describe like what you meant by that? Jazz education, as we call it, jazz education uh, is, it's kind of a funny thing. And um, I think, I think what's important for me, for someone of my generation and also for, younger people now who are who are getting into this music um who uh who are learning how to play you know um how to play jazz and how to express themselves that way it's i think it's really important for all of us to remember that this this isn't really classroom music uh, i'm not sure any music is classroom music honestly but it it's really not classroom music it's i mean it, and jazz education was at the founding of the music. It was just not a thing. I mean, mm -hmm. jazz education was the fact that you played with other people and you it was an experience. Yeah. And, than... and learning to play from your elders, um, from, from anything that you could sort of glean from their, from their performances, from playing with them. Um, you know, eventually with the advent of recording then and the recording industry, then also, learning from recordings and from radio uh, was a big, a big way that that music got around. Mm -hmm. um, but I know for myself personally, yeah, I mean, just, I'm in, I'm in <laughs> heavy debt to, to many uh, elders mm -hmm. who, uh, who continued to hire me for gigs, even though I definitely was not that good at the time and, um, <laughs> and would just drop little things here and there. Sometimes it would be verbal. Like, mm -hmm. hey, you know, yeah, yeah. Um, other times it would just be a look. Uh, 
or um, or a smile or a wink or, or or even just something felt in the music itself when it was happening that I would have to go home and kind of sort out. Uh, it still happens, <laughs> still right? Happens. But just it's uh, it's something that is traditionally just part of the music that um, you know. Mm -hmm. I think it's really important to play with people who are older and more experienced and better than you. Yes. And, uh, yeah. Them, if you can get them to tell your tell their stories, uh, mm -hmm. any any kind of story, but just stuff that they remember. Uh, mm -hmm. And if they do start telling stories, then shut up and listen. And uh, <laughs> you know, just yeah. yeah. And right. And actually, you know, that's what part of like this project is with, with the podcast is to um, to gain some insight. You know, it's not in a, like a, a musical setting, but to like, yeah, get a little more insight in, in any interesting like ideas um, that, you know, should be passed on. Um, you had mentioned to us earlier that, that there had been a few uh, members in the, the jazz community who had passed away in the in the past uh, few months and that that made you like step back and think of um yeah well you know if music if jazz specifically is more of an oral tradition you know when these people pass on then something is lost uh, a i mean a lot is lost you know not just the person but um, their all of their experience um, and being able to play with them and and that that kind of thing. Um, but yeah, I think you know we can certainly take a lot from um, playing with our, our with our elders, um, with our teachers, um, and yeah, and just draw from their experiences. Yeah. Yeah. You talk about like, you know, I think in jazz, there's the, the oral tradition takes a different meaning because you're learning by listening so much, uh, like using your ear in a different way than we do if we're reading off the page. But I think, I mean, obviously we all learn from listening and in classical music as well to the way that people play. Um, but I think, like you said about listening to your teachers or listening to people tell stories. And like, I think a lot about um, when I was in school and how uh, much importance my first teacher in college placed on on knowing like your lineage of teaching and who who your teachers teachers were and understanding where like even just the warm-ups that you do came from and and how all of that kind of came to be and i think i really enjoyed that aspect of teaching um and working with my students and like sharing all these little exercises that aren't written down or these concepts that are just they were just shared with me by my teachers and um you know we study with different people and we start to pull those together so in some way you know you have a little bit of that oral tradition just as part of teaching even if you're teaching a classical orchestral instrument um there's still an element of that which is really neat to think about that I think you know it's part of what we do but we don't we don't contextualize it all the time yeah yeah I mean, it's, I've, I've learned a lot from the all from all the local musicians older older and more experienced than myself that I've I've gotten to play with and um, you know, it's one of those things that when you're younger, sometimes you're, I, sometimes I was a little oblivious to maybe what, <laughs> what I should have been picking up. But, you know, eventually, you know, memory is a tricky thing, but eventually I feel like it gets through my skull somehow. Um, so yeah, there's, I'm, I'm really indebted to a lot of the local players. I mean, do you get nervous for performances? Do you still? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Not, I would like to think not debil not debilitatingly so, but um, you know, I've, I've got a copy of the Inner Game of Tennis, right. <laughs> <laughs> and, and a few other few other things too. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think we all do. I mean, I think hopefully, hopefully, as you, I'm, I'm no longer young, that's for sure. So, I mean, hopefully, as we as we age and as you gain an experience, I mean. I'd like to think I've learned a little bit here and there about how to channel that energy. Mm -hmm. I try to look at nerves as being energy mm -hmm. rather than being something uh, debilitating or negative. Right. And so mm -hmm. then how do I, how do I find 
a way to channel that energy or center it mm -hmm. um, when we're getting ready for a performance. It's also yeah. exciting. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. As far as de-stressing, things like that. Um, I mean, you, you ride bike a lot, right? Yeah. That's yeah. Um, I used to play soccer a lot and that was, that was beating up my, my body a little bit too much. <laughs> so yeah, I, I really like to ride my bike a lot, mm -hmm. uh, put, in, put in the miles and that, that seems to help the overall level. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, it, it helps a lot. I mean, to the point where my, my wife definitely notices if I haven't been getting out on the bike. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> um, so that's something, yeah, that's something I really enjoy. And also, you know, I'm sort of an amateur mechanic, so working on the bike itself. And, oh, okay, yeah. Whether it's building it up from from just the frame and some parts or the routine maintenance kinds of things. I just mm -hmm. enjoy getting getting down there in the basement and getting a little greasy and working on stuff. It's, it's fun. Yeah. Uh, that kind of thing. I have these little hobbies around the house, too. I roast coffee at, at home. Uh, I brew beer in my kitchen. It's <laughs> you know, like uh silly hobbies like that too but they're i i find them fun and um mm -hmm. yeah oh that's great mm -hmm. wow coffee and gives your brain some space to get out of like the other stuff you're doing like think in detail about other things yeah and there's and yeah morgan yeah and because there's like technique in that too like mm -hmm. you know i mean if i mess up the coffee roasting i i'm, I'm going to know, <laughs> you know? <laughs> And I'm going to be upset, you know, because I, <laughs> that's maybe too much pressure. But, you know, I, yeah, if I mess up the roast, it's, it'll be too dark or it'll be, it'll, it'll taste like Starbucks, you know, it'll be really charred or something. Um, and, you know, I'm not real happy with that. So I've, I've tinkered around with how to do that, rewiring things and um, things like that. So I can kind of control the roast uh, as I'm doing it. It's just a fun, fun outlet to learn about stuff. Um, mm -hmm. And, and to try something new that has sort of some technical knowledge that you need to know about it. Yeah. Kind, kind of like, it's kind of like your pottery making days, actually. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, definitely. There's, there's, there's a lot of, I don't have it anymore. I don't have any technique anymore, but there was definitely technique associated there and yeah, yeah. steps that need to happen in the process and um, right. paying attention to each one of those steps as you go, right. like any craft. Very cool. Very cool. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Ryan, for sitting down and talking with us today. Um, thank you for the invitation. Again, I really appreciate it. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, and thank you to our listeners. Um, this has been a lot of fun for Morgan and I to get to know our colleagues a bit better. And we hope you're enjoying these conversations. Um, if you, our listeners, have any questions or suggestions as to who you might enjoy an interview of, or uh, if you would like to sponsor any of our episodes, we have lots of musicians and students of musicians listening in, so please contact us at lifebetweenthenotes at gmail.com. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, and video versions can be found on Life Between the Notes uh, YouTube channel. So follow us at all of these places and wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. So thank you, Morgan. Thank you, Ryan. Thank you.